Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. California has some of the strictest gun laws in the nation. You might have thought it wasn't possible for the state to go even further. But in his first year in office, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a package of bills strengthening the state's existing laws and creating new ones. By the way, those critics that suggest sometimes in these moments that this bill itself would not have solved this problem or that problem, it's not about solving individual problems, it's about changing the dynamic and changing the trend lines. Mm -hmm. And we are interrupting those trend lines. And I've said this on many occasions, unlike baseball and politics, you don't get credit for sales. Among the proposals are limiting purchases of long guns to one a month and expanding the use of gun violence restraining orders. Today on the podcast, we offer a look at the current landscape, examine the recent wave of bills signed into law, and speak with two people on opposite sides of the gun violence debate, Craig Deleuz and Amanda Wilcox. I'm Brian Anderson. You're listening to California Nation. We are not going to have a circus here. But we just left pleasure. Paradise. 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 Can you please hug me? <laughs> Do not worry, Dutch is not here today. We, we clearly learned our lesson. These are not ordinary times. And this will not be an ordinary election. Joining me now is Amanda Wilcox, someone who's very passionate about this issue and directly affected. Ms. Wilcox, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Meet Amanda Wilcox. She's a member of California's chapter of the Brady Campaign, an organization that advocates for stricter gun control policies. She donated to the group for years, but never thought the issue would directly affect her life. But in 2001, her daughter died in a mass shooting. So Laura was a sophomore at Haverford College, which is near Philadelphia, and she was home for Christmas and winter break. Um, The preceding summer, she had worked at the county behavioral health clinic, a temporary position. It's just a summer job for her. She had worked there as a receptionist. Um, And when she came home, this was the middle of her sophomore year, uh, the the um, folks at the clinic, they loved her and said, anytime you want to come back and work, we'll, we'll find something for you to do. And so she decided to work for a week in January after most of her friends had gone back to college, but her schedule was a little bit different. And she, uh, first two days she worked in the file room. The new receptionist, her replacement, uh, had her old job. The third day uh, that the replacement receptionist 
um, was home with a sick baby, so Laura filled in as a receptionist. A client at the clinic came in and shot her four times at point-blank range through the glass window of the receptionist's office. He went home, took a nap, actually. I woke up and called his brother and said, I think I did something wrong. He was severely mentally ill, and certainly that came out in the trial, which was delayed for a while. He, first, he was incompetent to stand trial, but eventually he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And what's your, re- what, 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 what's your reaction when you hear this news about your daughter? What's going through your mind? When the sheriff, finally it was our sheriff who told us over the phone, my husband, two sons were home by then in, in early evening, actually it was pretty late. And, you know, then when I knew definitively it was Laura that was killed, I, best way to describe it, I just felt like I went underwater. And I was moving in slow motion. Everything seemed, um, my senses were deadened, best way to describe it. Um, sound seemed muffled, and I rem- and my knees buckled just like I'd always heard about. And I sat down, and my two tall teenage sons crawled into my lap, and life as we knew it was over for my family. It was after Laura's death when Amanda Wilcox started becoming more active in California politics. So my, you know, I w- I was numb in shock. The only reason I got out of bed, I would say, certainly the first three months after Laura was killed, is because I had two sons. And my grief for Laura was strong, but my love for them was equally strong, and that kind of kept me going. Um, my husband worked in Sacramento, and after a couple of weeks, he went back to work. And his sister, who was involved in uh, politics at the national level and had been... Um, in charge of government relations for Hershey Food Corp and had had uh, a lobbyist, I guess you'd say, working for her in Sacramento. She said to us, you know, if and when you're ready, you might be able to make a difference because of what happened to you and make a positive difference and save other lives. The man who killed Laura, his name was Scott Thorpe, was so psychotic, so severely mentally ill that he had no insight that he was ill. He did not recognize his illness. He resisted treatment, resisted medication, and we saw this need for people who are so severely mentally ill they don't have insight into illness, a way to get them into treatment. And that was our first effort. We found that we liked, as we learned more about the policy, and certainly we are not experts on mental health, on mental illness, but as we got into the policy and learned about the legislative process, we found we enjoyed it. Um, our other role was just to tell our story over and over again. And that's very important, I think, for many victim survivors, that that telling is healing. I remember I felt like I wanted the world to know about Laura. I mean, Laura was an amazing young woman. She was last, 18. Last, she was last thing anyone wants to, to hear is, is pretending like your your child didn't exist. They want right. to hear, tell me about right. Laura. That's right. often the last thing you right. think about asking, but the first thing you, you should say is just tell me about right. your your son or your daughter. Right, 
Right, to kind of keep, keep them alive and for me to, to help me remember. And so the, the telling is very, I think that's why so many victim survivors are advocates because that telling is very important and it's very healing and I think in a way it's, it's, it's a way to channel the anger and the grief. And um, so I think we both found it healing for us too and we thought we were making a difference. So again, our first involvement was mental health. And um, as there's change in leadership and Brady's staff, my husband and I in 2005, I think because of our background with the mental health legislation, became the legislation and policy chairs for the Brady chapters. Today, she's among the major leaders on the issue and even recently participated in a ceremony where Governor Gavin Newsom signed a package of gun bills. She distinctly remembers the time she interrupted him. Uh, there's a, there are four remaining gun-related bills that the were AB still... AB 521 you were asking about by Assemblymember Berman. Uh, that's a result of a survey, surveys showing that um, many physicians want to talk about guns, but they don't know how to bring it up. And, 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 and just transitioning to, to the current day where we are right now, what do you make of the landscape? Is it, is it enough? Because California has the strictest laws in the nation, and, and some feel that they're too onerous. Yes, clearly we have the strongest gun laws. Many gun owners claim, you know, think they are onerous. One thing I like to point out is that although we do have the strongest gun laws, our gun sales in recent years have been at record highs. We're not stopping law-abiding, sane, if you will, uh, gun people, people without a prohibition, firearm prohibition from buying guns. Um, so we do have the strongest gun laws. The big things, quote-unquote, I'd say we've done in California. Much of it we've done long ago, some of it more recently, and I you know, played a key role in it. Um, and so we are at the point, and as I think I said this at the press conference, where many of our laws, see, or many of the bills I'm working on, don't seem as exciting. They seem like um, very uh, specific, small policy fixes, and many of them are, but together uh, they add up, you know, that's how we've been doing it all along, these little pieces of legislation, throwing in a big policy bill now and then. SB 61, SB 61 by Senator Anthony Portentino would limit in one the form that was mind. signed into law, it's one semi-automatic centerfire rifle can be purchased in a 30-day period by one person. And we've had that law for handguns since 1999, I think. What new things is California going to do to limit access to guns? Because it seems that it's pretty close to, to being all the way there for, for most people. What, what more is there right. to do? Right. Well, our other priority bill is still moving the process. That's SB 55 by Hannah Beth Jackson. And it is, would um, create a firearm prohibition on a person who's had three DUIs within 10 years. And this is an example of, I think, what we're going to be doing in the future, which is now that we have the UC Center for Firearm Violence Research, which is based in Davis, and um, getting research and data on um, violence or who has a propensity to violence and seeing these kind of correlations, um, what is the most, what's most effective. And uh, I think those researchers there feel very strongly. 
and it's so clear to them uh, the correlation with um, uh, alcohol offenses and future acts of violence, future acts of firearm violence and firearm misuse. But certainly the alcohol, um, the nexus between alcohol and firearm violence is very real, and that's something we want to deal with. Well, Ms. Wilcox, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for covering the issue. Take care. Take care. You're listening to California Nation. I'm your host, Brian Anderson. Craig Deleuze works with the Firearms Policy Coalition and has long opposed California laws limiting access to guns. He disputes the level of support for universal background checks and worries about policies California lawmakers have recently enacted. Sitting here to discuss it with me now is Craig Deleuze. Craig, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I just got off the phone with Amanda Wilcox, and you heard that as well. And she tells a very compelling, emotionally horrible story that I'm sure you or anybody, no one would wish that on anyone. And her daughter was just going to work, Mm -hmm. didn't live in a violent place. She was just doing her job, going to work like many kids just go to school. What is the way to protect them? Because that's ultimately, regardless of political differences, the thing everyone wants to get at. How do you protect those people? I think first and foremost, it's important to understand that uh, as much as I, as much respect as I have for law enforcement, um, they are often minutes away when seconds matter. And when we understand that we are our own first responders, the f- the best way that we can allow that we can protect people is to allow them to protect themselves. And how do you think people are best able to protect themselves? Um, I know that I, I understand that I am my own first responder. Uh, therefore, I've taken it upon myself to get a concealed carry permit. I've taken it upon myself to uh, train and practice and take classes regularly uh, and to make sure that at all, time, at all times that I am legally able to do so, that I am in a position to be able to defend myself and defend others around me. Should kids in classes be armed? Uh, well, maybe not kids in classes. Um, but keep in mind, there used to be a time. Well, I, let me go take a step back. There used to be a time when, when many California classes. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. There used to be a time when many California schools actually had shooting ranges uh, and shooting teams at their schools. I mean, the thing is, is rather than teaching, rather than teaching fear of firearms, we need to be teaching respect for firearms. Walking it back, what do you think is the single most effective way to prevent unnecessary gun deaths? First of all, you have to understand that, that murder has been around, it's as old as Cain and Abel. So is suicide. So, <laughs> so is suicide. But understand that, pe- understand that if, if people want to commit evil, they're going to find a way to commit evil. So, so first of all, we have to understand that it's not a gun problem, it is a violence problem, or most, most importantly, it's a people problem. And we need to address fundamental issues regarding why people commit suicide or why people commit violence, violent acts against others. What's the one thing that you think, there's no silver bullet, let's put that context, there is right. no one thing, mm-hmm. but what is the most impactful policy solution to address gun-related deaths? What's the most impactful thing that you think the legislature could do to prevent people from dying? And I understand that you believe guns don't kill people, it's the people mm-hmm. that do, and I get that. Mm-hmm. But what's the solution? But I know, but 
you're, you're, you're asking me to give you a solution to a problem that I, when, when the fundamental question that you're asking is flawed. And, and that's the thing. You're saying, it's like saying, okay, well, you know, I don't know, I know you don't believe in God, but uh, what's the most important thing to have in your relationship with God? You don't believe in any limits to access to <laughs> firearms? I believe, that there is a, I believe that there is a fundamental basis and we ought to be treating the, the Second Amendment like we treat other of, our, other, other of our fundamental rights. And the fact is, is that we don't do that. Do you, 88, 90, depending on the polls you look at, Majority of Democrats and Republicans want to see universal background checks. Yeah. Do you? Uh, first of all, I understand that that first of all that poll has been debunked. Uh, the issue is is that is when the term universal background checks. I always the issue is the devil's in the details. So do nine you time, want nine, to see universal nine time, background checks? Nine, just time, yes or no? nine times out of ten. Well, what are you talking about? I mean, you're saying it's like me saying, well, do you want a luxury car? Do, if you go, if I ask you, do you want a luxury car? What do you want a luxury car? I'd rather sell it. But it depends on I'll what. I'll take your luxury car, right. And then I'll sell it right, right. away. Right. But the doesn't profit. it does doesn't it matter whether or not what that actually means? I mean, what does it mean if I say, "Do you want a luxury car?" Does that mean that now you've now before you can have it, you now you now owe taxes on this vehicle that now has been just now been given to you? Does that mean you also have to pay a luxury tax on it? The problem is, is that when you say, "Do you believe in universal background checks?" What does that mean? So more narrowly tailored, do you support? The concept that before you buy a gun, you should be examined by the government to make sure that you're not a criminal before you get the gun. I, once again, you, you, you keep saying that, but I don't know what that examination looks like. And my problem is, is that every time you ask the question, you ask it like you know. And I know you don't know. I know you don't know what that looks like. It, and, and why I don't mean to be condescending, but the fact is, is that there are probably a handful of people in the entire state of California who really understand firearms, firearms technology, firearms uh, law, firearms uh, uh, industry, and how those intersect when it comes to policy. And I can guarantee you, none of them work. None of them are sitting in the California state legislature. I, and I, by the way, I don't consider myself to be one of them. What I'm saying is, is that is that the devil is in the details. Do you reject polls that say the majority of them? I, I understand. When yes, I poll, yes, I reject those polls. So a pollster asks universal background checks. I get that there's a lot of mitigating forces as to mm -hmm. what that means, whether there's a fee involved. Right. I get that. But you reject the overwhelming consensus of pollsters that a majority of Republicans, independents, Democrats, and likely voters. I, I believe that one. That. I believe that once you dig down into exactly what that means, I believe that you start losing people. You start losing support for universal background checks. So yeah. Jerry Brown, he vetoed a couple bills that Newsom had signed related mm -hmm. to expansion of gun violence restraining right. orders, limiting long gun purchases to one a month. Newsom signed those. Brown had previously vetoed similar bills. What's your fear right now? that's new with this administration that you maybe had to a lesser extent under the prior administration? You know, I, I think Jerry Brown and his experience, um, you know, once again, being one of the most liberal governors California has ever seen, um, I think he recognized with that with the Democratic Party being, controlling both houses of the legislature and the executive, um, that uh, he realized someone had to be the adult in the room. Someone had to take a look at some of these ideas and say, okay, I get where you're going, but this goes too far. Um, and I think that in many cases, Jerry Brown did that. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has demonstrated he's not interested in being the adult in the room. Uh, 
his desire is to do what will ever get him, whatever get him in the headlines. I guess, you know, after, you know, after a career as lieutenant governor where his only job was waking up in the morning and finding out if the governor died yet, got died today. Or left the state. Or left the state. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I just get the impression that he wants to do anything that will make a splash. And uh, the sad part is, is that uh, the rights of many Californians are, are, are being violated uh, as a result of some of these, some of, some of his decisions and some of the bills that he signed. Uh, but the good news is, is that there's going to be plenty of opportunities uh, for justice to be sought in the court. Craig, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for coming on our show. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to California Nation. You know what that sound means? It's time for our favorite part of the show, Buzz of the Week, where I give you a headline I can't stop thinking about. And the thing I can't get off my mind this week is Tom Steyer. He's the billionaire liberal activist from California who recently made his debut on the Democratic debate stage. Here's a bit of what he had to say. There have been 40 years where corporations have bought this government, and those 40 years have meant a 40-year attack on the rights of working people and specifically on organized labor. This prompted Steyer's fellow competitor, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, to say, and I quote, not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires, end quote. What I can't get off mine, though, is the sheer amount of money Steyer has spent since launching his campaign. Hours after railing against the influence of money in politics, Steyer's campaign released its first financial report. What it revealed was stunning. Steyer has already spent $47.6 million of his own money on his campaign. That's nearly half of the $100 million he vowed to spend on his presidential bid. Here's what Steyer told me before the debate. Look, you know, I have a very specific job in this campaign. My job is to try and talk to as many people as possible and explain what I stand for and who I am. That's my job. All the questions you're asking me are, are questions for the campaign manager, which is not my job. Mm -hmm. And, and well, there, you can ask there, me those questions, and every time I'm going to say, I don't know. Much of that money was spent on television and digital ads. While it's true, Steyer earned his way onto the debate stage by meeting the Democratic National Committee's polling and individual donor thresholds, it's also true he spent a lot of money to get there. Of the 12 candidates on stage, he raised the least amount of money from outside donors and had the smallest average donation size at $12, suggesting he spent a lot to get small dollar contributions. He had just 2.6 million cash on hand through the end of September. And all that spending in such a short period of time is what I can't get off my mind. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of California Nation. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find our show. Word of mouth also helps. To keep up with all the latest political news, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Brian R. Anderson. That's B-R-Y-A-N-R-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N. We'll be back in your feed in a couple weeks with a new episode. Until next time, I'm Brian Anderson. This is California Nation. Hello. Hey, Mr. Steyer. Brian, call me Tom. Oh, okay. Hey, you're well. You're running for president now, so.
everything's got to be official, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do appreciate the time.